Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. With us Friday, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update. Mr. Honline, happy Hanukkah. Welcome back to JM in the AM. Uh, Merry Latkes to you and to everyone. And a great Shabbos coming up. Yeah, joyous one. confluence of Shodah, Shabbos, everything. It's great. Yeah, Bezrat Hashem, everybody should have a very joyous and wonderful Shabbos. So, um... I mean, we'll start with this. There are, it is amazing how many people have had to rearrange their schedules because of the situation now with travel restrictions to Israel. I understand that at some point between today and the next week or two, people can pursue being exceptions and getting in, but that's not my question. Do you have any indication if they're going to go back very soon to what was the new system of simply allowing people in with PCR tests? I think it's under review that a lot of the countries rush to judgment about the, uh, the closing down, the isolation, and there's really a lot of negative reaction to it. And certainly when it comes to Israel, you know, people had planned because it was Hanukkah and it's to see their children in schools in Israel. Um, I know, and it's painful for them. Many people had hotel reservations. Hotels were actually sold out in some instances, but really packed in others. And the, um, the fact that uh, they couldn't go was uh, very painful, but I, I do think that they will come up with a m- once they see the impact of the new variant and the spread here in the states, and the fact that you have more cases, obviously, is going to raise the concern even higher. Um, so I do know that it's a, it's under review. I do know that people, um, the exceptions committee, started to function, so that those who have an immediate need. Uh, or first-degree relatives and things should apply and see what happens. And it's, it, there's no consistency uh, that I see to the to the ultimate decision. So if you were told, for instance, that, I mean, just as an example, that this weekend they'll announce that in a week it's back to the old rules, you'll believe that as much as you'll believe that the new rules stay in effect for God knows how long. I mean, you don't know what to believe. Basically. <laughs> or, or you'll believe anything. That's the problem. It's the uncertainty. You know, this one of the frustrating things I have to tell you, I, there's nobody in this audience that I have to tell it to. Everyone's been experiencing it for the last almost two years. The, the, um, the uncertainty of anything. I said to someone in my family yesterday, I forget the days where I could make a plan and carry it through. Where I could make a plan and just, you know, and, and see it through 99% of the time, unless, God forbid, some type of emergency comes up. And now it's you make plans, and it's impossible. You have no idea what locally or internationally is going to derail that plan. Anyway, sorry for being the target of my frustration, but, you know. It's a weekly experience. Yeah, exactly. You, you agreed to come on, so, I mean, give me a break. Don't blame me. You're, you're the one who said yes. By the way, speaking of frustration, I, I know that we could spend the next hour on this and more. Scott Shea was a guest yesterday. The brand-new book is Conspiracy You. Uh, it, it's unbelievable what's going on in the college campuses and how conspiracy theories and lies, I asked them, and I'd like to ask you what the difference is between a conspiracy and a lie, but the conspiracy theories and lies that are being um, uh, dressed up with research and with statistics and with studies is simply unbelievable. It's not just the kids that are on college campuses are getting an anti-Zionist, anti-Jewish feeling and are becoming targets, but they're getting targeted in this academic way as if there is a way to prove that this hatred for Israel and for Jews is justified. 
First of all, Scott Shea's book is a very important contribution to this discussion, and he's also an amazing guy uh, in many respects. The, 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 you know, every conspiracy theory is basically a lie. Not every lie is a conspiracy theory. Right. Uh, a lie can be something an individual just makes up and says. A conspiracy theory is organized. And what we're seeing is organized. And because people weren't on campus last year, it may not have been as visible to the general public, although it was continuing. But the BDS is a vehicle which they see getting acceptance by popular figures, by uh, Ben and Jerry's, by others, that um, uh, it, it has a different impact, I think, uh, in, in terms of the danger it poses, although a lie can spread, you know, blood libel, whatever, can, you know, people pay with their lives. Mm-hmm. And we continue to till to today. So, and you saw COVID gave rise to a lot of conspiracy theories, and and those who track these things online on the internet, it's really quite remarkable. I guess in previous generations they tracked it on newspapers or whatever means of communication to see how it spread, where it came from. But today we can, there are people who can go down into the dark web beneath the surface and see exactly how they're manufactured. And you have state sponsors like Iran, like the PA, sources in Ukraine and Russia and elsewhere uh, who who promulgate these uh, these vicious Internet sites, and there are tens of thousands of them. That's what people don't realize, how widespread it is and its impact. And once a lie gets on the Internet, how many times have you seen these things that go around the world and every six months it pops up again? Yeah. And you remember with the universe, we discussed this once about, it said the, the U.K., bans Holocaust teaching, and it was one teacher in one school, and somebody spread it. But the University of Kentucky president called me because he was getting bombarded by former students and donors. You know, why is University of Kentucky? And UK was not University of Kentucky, wow. but it didn't matter. The impact. Wow. And then six months later, it came back again. And because it goes around the world on the Internet and then comes back. And that, that's why it's never-ending. People don't really realize, the, you know, Hitler spread the big lie, but it took him months. Mm-hmm. Now it's done in nanoseconds. Yeah. yeah, yesterday one of the things we discussed, and uh, obviously you and I have addressed this before, and we encourage people to pay careful attention to this, is that you, you can't fight this battle without an army behind you. You need people out there who are ready to commit uh, to be outspoken on these issues. For instance, yesterday I mentioned we were talking about the book that, you know, we've got to provide parents and grandparents have to provide the tools for these kids to go to the campus. And he responded, yeah, it, it, you're right that they need tools in terms of how to deal with it, but it's not their battle. The battle is uh, is among those who have influence and who have financial influence around the country and who are sitting on boards and are presidents of universities, et cetera, et cetera. And it's those people that need to be pressured in order to, you know, change the tide and stem the tide of all this. So again, we said it last week toward the end of our conversation. I'm going to say it again. You and other leaders cannot fight this alone. People who who want to get involved need to start getting involved. Then they'll realize just how much influence they can have on the key people in these different universities and media sources that have to be challenged. And by the way, you know, he, he of course, writes about Northwestern, but he started talking about some of the local universities in this area. I mean, we're talking about places with, with large Jewish populations. Everyone's just Rabbis and leaders have to start paying attention and encourage congregants and constituents to get involved. 
So I'm giving you a pass and all the other... All the, no, I don't want to pass because it is something we devote a lot, a lot of time to. But it's true. Donors, alumni, former students, the students themselves are in a very difficult position. They're intimidated. They're afraid that how it will impact them. You know, they want to graduate and get out, and then they often will speak out. But we have really courageous students at Columbia and NYU at other places who have stood up to the administrations, exposed some of the professors. Rarely does it, it um, uh, culminate. But when we, we engage in lawsuits, the Lawfare Project brought lawsuits. Remember, the San Francisco State case was right. powerful, and it sent a message to everybody else about it. And when when people hear it, when you see it, you can't dismiss it, and it shouldn't be up to the students. The communities where they are located, especially where it's a smaller universe, college or university, where you don't have a big Jewish population to stand up, to, to uh, go to the community and to get the support. Uh, and, it, and it does work. And, and often, you know, it's university people, uh, leaders are not aware of it. I, I had a particular case, a personal case, where I refused an honorary doctorate because of, of something that happened on the campus against a Jewish student. Mm. And it turned out that the president was the most innocent guy in the world. He, he didn't understand it. He didn't, first, he didn't know about the particular incident, but, you know, they told me he's cold and this and that. And I came there and he couldn't have been nicer, and he took action, and they suspended the student who engaged in this action. And and so I'm saying, don't jump to conclusions. Know the facts of it. There are enough facts. There are enough cases, and as you said, in universities in the New York area, and expose them. Talk to them. You have call and shows. You have letters to editors. You have media that uh, the Internet gives you an opportunity to tell the story, but make sure your facts are right. And don't cry wolf and and you know, press them to adopt the IRA definition, because once you have that, you have at least a standard against which to measure their performance and the IRA definition with its examples. So there are things people can do. Another thing is we should be demanding that Al Jazeera be put under the um, uh, FARA laws as a foreign agency, like RT, you know, because of associations with Russia, was recently done and closed, actually. And we can get Al Jazeera is a vehicle that attacks Israel and attacks the Abraham Accord countries. It, it's, uh, it's, it's vicious, and yet it has free reign in America. Wow. Um, okay, next topic. The uh, United Nations General Assembly approved the resolution 129 to 11 on Wednesday, disavowing Jewish ties to the Temple Mount, called solely by its Muslim name of Al Haram Al Sharif. This at the same time, of course. Uh, the President of the United States and God knows how many other international leaders and public officials were recognizing the fact that we're now in the midst of a holiday that has to do with the rededication of said temple on the Temple Mount. Um, I mean, I certainly want you to address the timing, but could you address the outrageousness of what happened at the United Nations? This is, it's very important. I know there are still many people who dismissed the significance of the UN, and it's a mistake because it does have an impact, and especially outside the United States, and those who want to pick up, talking about conspiracy theories, and they use this to justify their position, saying, it's not us, look at this vote in the United Nations, 129 to 11. The fact is that you had, from the last time the vote, you had 14 abstentions, this time you had 31. The U.K. moved from a yes vote to an abstention, um, and that you had um, less votes for it than you had in the past, but it shouldn't even exist. It, it just erases all the Jewish link, which in fact erases Christian link to it mm-hmm. as well, because right. it's based on the Jewish right. ties to the Temple Mount. And it mentions only refers to it 
as uh, as Hamar Sharif. It doesn't say slash Temple Mount. And if you remember, maybe 10 years ago, when they first introduced this thing about putting a slash, I said that eventually they will remove the Jewish part altogether, if you recall, and, mm-hmm. and made this point repeatedly on the show because it was clear that that was the direction and how this, this is a conspiracy. This is a deliberate campaign to delegitimize Jewish history, not just the state of Israel, but all of Jewish history and and the connection to Jerusalem. And you take away our past, you take away our future. So this is, um, you know, one of the most uh, critical things in the resolution is that it says you've got to maintain the status quo. And here they destroy the status quo. And this is, you know, the fact that this is the holiest place in Judaism for us. It's not the holiest place to Muslims. It can be sacred to other people as well, and certainly to Christians. But the the um, the vote of 129 to 11 feeds the ca- propaganda campaign. And you know that the UN spends millions of dollars on special committees to do propaganda for the Palestinians. It doesn't do anything to help them. It's just money that goes into the pockets, uh, and where, no one knows exactly where. But they put on exhibitions. They put on all these pro-Palestinians, anti-Israel. Uh, manifestations of, of various kinds. There, by the way, there were more resolutions, you know, against Israel. The usual spate of, of uh, resolutions, including uh, the, that Israel is under permanent investigation. It's the only country in the world. You have all these vicious dictatorships that uh, you know the UN doesn't mention, doesn't uh, even focus on. And, you know, the, a couple of members of Congress, former members of Congress, including Elliot Engel and Shirley, Shirley Berkeley, wrote an important piece where they essentially called on the shutting down of the special committee, uh, these special committees, you know, and the United States pays almost a quarter of the U.N. budget. So we have a, a really big voice in a lot of this. And the uh, this and what they're doing doesn't help Palestinians. It's not conducive to peace. It does quite the opposite. And instead of demanding direct negotiations and and putting the onus where it belongs on the Palestinians, they give a buy to them and they they uh, put completely the onus on Israel. So we have a, a don't dismiss it. It has huge propaganda value and leads to conspiracies. How uh, how much of a cop-out are the abstentions? There are over 30 abstentions to this uh, resolution, right? Right, 31. What kind of cop-out is that, especially from some of the countries that are included on that list? Well, it's not as good as a no vote. It's better because once they don't, are not able to have most of the leading democracies in the, in the pro-vote, it helps. So when uh. Britain goes to an abstention... It is a positive step, but it's not good enough. There's no reason why anybody should be voting for this. If they're really interested in the region, if they're interested in the historical truth, if they want to maintain the, the UN, they should be voting against this thing. Do they regret it? Do any of these countries who voted yes or even abstained a day or two later regret their decision, or there's not enough pressure on them to, to worry about that? They well, some of them tell us, you know, that they vote all together with the non-aligned movement. So whatever the non-aligned movement, which used to have Iran as it had, and Iran is a mixed force there, uh, and other dictatorships, uh, uh, so they just follow automatically. Many of them say they don't get instructions, and they that's why you know these trips to Israel with the ambassadors has helped raise the number of abstentions right. and slightly the numbers of no votes. 
but the um, uh, I don't know that they give. It's it's an automatic knee jerk reaction, and you know the, it's interesting that nobody. Uh, talks about the expulsion of the Jews from Muslim countries. Uh, I know the Israeli ambassadors spoke about it, and the, um, and the and one of the things that's inherent in these resolutions is the demand of the right of return. Right. Well, there is no right of return, and this demand is is outrageous. Obviously, a is something that would lead to the <coughs> destruction of the Jewish state. So. You know, it's very complicated issues, but they've got to be heard, and we've got to continue to keep the pressure on. We try to with others, and many of the leaders in the U.N., we met with the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Um, just a few days ago. It's imperative to keep the pressure on. G- give me 10 seconds on the irony of it being during Hanukkah week. J- just give me your initial reaction. It reminds us of how important for the battle of Hanukkah continues in our day. Yep. The battle of light over darkness, even in the international body charged with uh, trying to eradicate the um, hatred and bigotry. And even as world leaders are recognizing that the holiday is all about the rededication of the temple, <laughs> the Jewish temple. The Jewish temple, exactly. <laughs> and, and one of the things that's interesting is how in, the, in some of the Arab Abraham Accord countries, you've had candle lightings, Hanukkah celebration, right. in, in, and in Muslim countries generally we've seen uh, this increased interest in um, events and manifestations uh, focusing on their Jewish communities. And yet here, in the most fundamental place where it all started and where a whole history, story took place, and, you know, the new dis- discoveries where they found the place of, of one of the last battles of the Hashmanoim, and the and they found the actual uh, place where the battle took place, but it wasn't a battle. It turns out that they saw, that the Seleucids saw the Jews coming, and they ran away from their posts. So it was left intact. And there's so many discoveries about this period that, that are announced at this time, whether they're actually made this time or not, it's not clear, but, <laughs> <laughs> I like but they know what to save it for. <laughs> um, but the, the discoveries, nonetheless, are significant yeah. from this period, and it, it proves the story. And it's not like we don't have some historical records. You have the Book of Maccabees, you have uh, um, the, the historical accounts, uh, Josephus, etc. We know what happened, and yet... They dismiss it, and it's it, when you when you eradicate history in this cancel culture, and when we see all the revisionist history or the, the the disregard for history, then you don't have a foundation for the future. Yep, hundred percent. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored digital radio around the world, the web, and AchimSegal.com, the AchimSegal Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Just one last quick thing. Um, and I and I think you actually address this. I just I don't know if I understood it properly. This comes up on a regular basis. These resolutions, like what, what's the procedure procedurally? Why is this happening this week at the UN? They're annual, and, they, and that's and it. There are, there are about twenty that. resolutions against Israel that yeah. are automatic, and that's it. There's no and and they're the item. They have a separate item on the Human Rights Council. The only country, not Syria, not Iran, not all these guys who've been engaged in massive. And murders of people, dislocation of populations, population replacement, none of them are, are subject to, to this. Only Israel is a special item by itself, and only Israel is the subject of these automatic resolutions in the, in the General Assembly and in the specialized agencies from the World Health Organization, the Human Rights Council, UNRWA, UNESCO, all of these bodies that had such lofty goals are, are really distorting them 
and using these, they use these vehicles against Israel. That's why we emphasize so much the importance of history, of remembering what happened in the story of the, of the Maccabees. It's not just lighting candles and ritual. You've got to learn the lessons. Remember what it means to stand up against these tyrannies. Yeah, no question about it. It's just history repeating itself. What do we know about this episode of the bus of Jewish people who were celebrating Hanukkah and being attacked in London? It was young people that were in a in a bus, and they were stopped at a light or something, and outside, I don't know of any provocations or anything. Uh, uh, I've seen the film. I spoke to people in London. Everybody was safe uh, from it. But you saw giving Nazi salutes young people, Nazi salutes spitting at them, um, and uh, it's unfortunately not an isolated inc- incident, not in London. Not in the United States. You have these women that they're being that are being sought to slap little Jewish children on the streets in New York. You have so many incidents of this, and the very fact that they feel impunity in doing it publicly. Now, again, we don't know what if something triggered it, but when young people are giving Nazi salutes, that tells you we have a more fundamental problem. No question about that. Um, I, I know that generally we don't discuss local issues. I'm not asking you to discuss it. I'm just curious because people reach out to you for so many different things. Have people reached out to you about the uh, mayor of New York and the decision to uh, mandate vaccination for private school employees? No. Nobody said a word yet, huh? Because I'm, well, I'm assuming... Up, but that's not an issue. No, no, no. I, I get that. But I'm assuming it's going to be a hot-button issue over the next week or two in the Jewish community, unless I'm misreading oh, it. Oh, it will be a hot-button yeah. issue, and it will be a hot-shot issue, too. <laughs> and, <laughs> but, <laughs> and, you know, I think it, it, it'll certainly have to pass constitutional muster whether they have a right to impose that on private schools, but it's... Um, Potentially another confrontational issue. Okay. Uh, let's go to Iran. Um, it, it, I, every week, it's interesting to you know see how the U.S. is reacting to what Israel says, how Israel is reacting to what the U.S. says, whether there will be a deal, won't be a deal, etc. But now, Israel has been pretty open, and some of its public officials, including the defense minister, have been pretty open about the... We've always talked about the capabilities and the wherewithal that Israel would have to actually have an operation and a plan to strike Iran, but... They're doing a lot of talking about it in public right now. What type of position are they trying to take uh, publicly, especially vis-a-vis the U.S. and the White House? Well, first of all, they're trying to educate the world and say why this is so serious and how Iran is playing everyone. I don't think by the end of this week, uh, maybe perhaps today, tomorrow, uh, when the talks in Vienna are shown to have been a total failure, uh, and likely not to continue unless the Iranians do a quick about-face. But it's clear they didn't go into this with the intention of coming out with a deal. They wanted one thing, sanctions relief. But the fact that they're able to sell oil and some of the economic pressure may have been reduced, they had more money, um, that that helped. Their economy is in total ruins. Uh, I was talking to people about what it's like when you get four zeros lopped off of your savings and you have $50,000 and you have end up with five. How do people survive? And I still don't know the answer, but Iran, the manifestations domestically are incredible. Half the country is under a strict drought. There are huge demonstrations in Isfahan by people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands were in the streets because they had no water, and it's it's a huge city. Uh, You know, Iran has the lowest birth rate in the Middle East today. Hmm. 
Mm -hmm. 1.7 children, the first child is born after, I think, three or four years of marriage, and the second around nine years of marriage. But people are not having kids, which is a statement. You see the reverse in Israel, where it has the highest birth rate of in the OECD countries, developed countries. But Iran publicly declares their intention to go to 90% purity, which is weapons grade. We know that they're stockpiling huge amounts that they've installed. The IR-6, I talked about this months ago, that this was going to happen at the Fordow fuel enrichment plant. We know that they're doing it in, in uh, other plants. And the estimates are that within uh, six months, they would have four weapons. They could produce four weapons, and they could produce one in three weeks today. That the breakout time is very different. Now, it means that they have enough enriched uranium for a bomb. They need to affix it to a weapon to go into a missile, but they have the missile delivery system. So there are only technical obstacles on the way, but it doesn't mean that within a relatively short period of time, they would really be able to kill themselves a nuclear power and have the ability to to deliver those weapons. So the the uh, I think the European reaction uh, saying that if uh, they go to 90% or if they continue the enrichment rates, they're continuing. There's no question. And they're saying, well, that could endanger. We're seeing a, a somewhat tougher stand, but I think it's more frustration because they want a deal. They wanted to come out of this, and there's a lot of people who have invested heavily, you know, saying that we can get them, the Iranians, back to a deal, including um, some American officials. But I think most are, are more clear-eyed about what the threat is and, and where we stand with Iran today. And if you look at the statements that they're making, how much more vicious the uh, declarations are and the um, uh, threats that, that are inherent in it, I think you would understand why this has to be taken, again, so seriously. If you look at and people should just check General McKenzie's remarks from CENTCOM, the Central Command, some of the others who are there on the front line talking about it, too many people seem to just say, well, we just have to accept that they're going to be a nuclear power. No, we don't have to accept it. And we should make sure now when their economic conditions is so dire and remains dire that we not release billions of dollars to them. And uh, and we demand that the IA inspectors be allowed to go into these places in Karaj, where they manufacture these the, the centrifuges, the advanced centrifuges. They, they dismantled the cameras, and they won't allow them to see the footage that was taken even before, let alone now. So the fact is, the IA doesn't know what's going on in, in terms of uh, the Iranian uh, program, but. Israel has a pretty good idea, and that's why I think the prime minister and others are sounding the alarm that people not say afterwards, well, you didn't say it. They're saying it, and they're giving the facts, and they're not doing it in a threatening way. I think they're doing it a way to put the marker down that Israel is not going to be bound by any agreement that is reached that is detrimental, and that they will stand up. And And I think many of the countries in the region are looking to them to do so. Yeah, but the threat is getting more and more open. I mean, meaning the 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 threat that Israel is threatening Iran with is, seems to be getting more and more open, and they are less um, uh, less bashful, frankly, the Israeli officials about you know bringing up the fact that they're ready to strike at any moment. Now, the truth is, you may say to me that it's always been that way, and that plenty of public officials have used the opportunity in the press to to warn Iran. Uh, but maybe just this time, to me, it seems like it's it's against the uh, wishes of the U.S. You know, when they were doing it in the past administration, it always seemed like the U.S. would always have their back. Now, I just don't know if that's clear as it was back then. 
it's not as clear as perhaps as you're saying compared to to recent years. Right. Uh, but I think that the administration, nobody in a reasonable position will will today dismiss. And I know that uh, some of those working on this, in, in, even in the current administration, are very committed to to this. I think right now nobody knows, not the Europeans, not the U.S., exactly what to do. People don't want a war. They don't want to engage in a military action. But increased economic sanctions are valuable and work and have an impact. And we we can't give in to the demands to Iran's threats. We have to crack down more. We have to send them the message and the message to our allies in the region. Uh, we often talk to to you know the Arab countries there. They have to get a message that the United States is committed to do whatever is necessary, as has been said over and over again by this president and previous presidents, uh, that we're not going to allow it to to reach the breakout time. Um, if it's now a month, if it will become less, and we had that, we will not allow them to have the wherewithal to to make a bomb, even if they can say well, we haven't assembled a bomb. But if you have all the things in the lineup, that means that your breakout is not six months, it's not a year, it's not two years, and all the the sunset clauses of the JCPOA are coming into effect, which means there's less and less restrictions on them. And their goal, and it seems that we're uh, EC the new extremist uh, <laughs> prime minister, which means he's only a little more extreme than the previous government, mm-hmm. has made very clear, and the appointment of people, vicious people, some of them wanted by uh, Interpol, one for involvement in the bombing in Amia. Uh, we see exactly what their stance are and who he's appealing to. Uh, and maybe it's it's also a play because they think that maybe Khamenei's days will be numbered and they want to get the support of hardliners who will make up the majority of the marshals, the parliament, uh, that um, that they're forcing these kind of really tough-line positions. And when they feel that they can sell oil to China and they get the money, and as long as the leadership has the money, they don't care about the people. Yeah, I totally understand that. Um, finally, the... Um the uh, cancellation of the plans, alteration of the plans, I don't know how you'd put it. I'm sure you'll give us a more accurate description than I'm giving of um, uh, a Haredi neighborhood to be uh, established in East Jerusalem. It looks like the prime minister scrapped that plan this week, came under a lot of criticism because many believe that the prime minister Netanyahu, especially under the last administration in the United States, or maybe even under this one, would never have uh, caved in like that. Uh, what could you tell us about uh, what the prime minister decided, and did he, in fact, cave into American pressure? Well, one of the only American pressure, it's a pressure generally about the building and where the Atarot uh, airport uh, was is a big location. I don't think it's canceled. I think it's postponed, uh, and we'll have to learn more about what the reasons. I mean, there are many potential reasons. Uh, I think right now, given the focus in Iran, they didn't want to have uh, interest in everybody deflect onto Israel, and they wanted to keep the focus on the Vienna talks and the situation there. Um, but, you know, the pressure mounts. Israel has announced quite a bit of construction, and you see that even the U.S. ambassadors spoke about, you know, the settlement expansion mm-hmm. reaching critical points, and in speeches to, um, and in statements that the administration makes, even supporting Israel, these these references uh, always uh, slipped in. And while they, the administration, I think, has tried to avoid and open confrontations on on critical issues with Israel, uh, this this is a, 
this one they have constantly um, made reference to. So I think the prime minister and the government sort of looked at this and said, right now we need to put all our, our energies here. I, I don't think it's that. I think it's it's a great location for those who have been there. And I remember flying into the after rope many times when we flew to the south. Uh, it's a it's a great location. And we have to assert our, our, our uh, Israel's position. You know, in the Negev today, the Bedouin are expanding and creating facts on the ground. We need to expand the Jewish population there. And there are a lot of demands and things that need to be addressed to, to look at the long-term security of Israel. Losing the Negev in this way would be a terrible mistake. I think there are ways, you know, they want to build cities for the Bedouin and have them live inside and... That also helps, you know, with these massive birth rates because they have multiple wives. Uh, that there are steps that can be taken within the uh, proper bounds to address these these concerns. But you can't show that we give in to when a legitimate right and interest is at stake. So they have to balance those things. Uh, I mean, I think the Prime Minister of Israel has one of the most thankless jobs. Uh, Although they had some thankful things, Germany, the, the Deutsche Postbank this week uh, dropped all the Hamas accounts and BDS accounts, and together with what Britain did last week in in banning um, all of Hamas, the military, quote military wing, which is I mean, and and the political wing, it's all one thing. But now these are the major sources of funding for Hamas. And I think that, uh, that in many of these countries, because they see it as a threat to them, not just to Israel, but taking these steps are really critical. So we have to continue to press on all sides of this. Yeah, the prime minister had an interesting week, and uh, at least his family gets the vacation against the advice of his own administration that people in Israel should not be uh, traveling at this time. But, uh, hey... You know, the rules aren't made for the leaders. The rules are made for the hamonam, for the general public to follow. So That's a little harsh, I think. You know, the, they shouldn't punish the family either. If uh, Just because the father decides to devote his life to public service. Um, but if there are messages that they send. And if the public loses faith or says, you know, if the rules don't apply to everybody equally, then it doesn't apply to anybody. Interesting. I thought I'd have you on my side on this one. <laughs> well, I don't believe in attacking, you know, the families yeah, of people true. who choose to do public service. I hear that. I hear that. Uh, but it's a bad visual. It's a. It's just a... That's true. It's a bad visual at the very beginning of the episode. You know, it's the first week of this new restriction, so you'd think at least give it a little bit of time. But I hear what you're saying. I take this opportunity to wish you a wonderful Shabbos Rosh Chodesh Hanukkah, and we'll speak Bezrat Hashem next week. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays for the weekly update right here at JM in the AM.